0: Thank you, uh, Cassie, for reading for us. Thank you, Jessica, for your prayer. Um, When you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you notice is that over the course of many separate occasions, Jesus teaches his disciples that he is going to die. He tells them that he is going towards his death. In fact, Matthew himself uh, records four separate occasions where Jesus takes the time to kind of unpack his future and the fact that he is going to go to the cross, that he is going to be crucified, that he's going to be handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees and that they are going to give him into the hands of the Roman uh, overlords and that he is going to be killed In fact, uh, one of those spots is right here in Matthew chapter 26. It wasn't part of our reading, but at the very beginning of this chapter, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. As you know, which means I've said this before, this should have sunk into your heads by now, I am going to be killed I am going to be crucified. And he knew that his death was going to be horrible. He knew what crucifixion was. And yet, he just says, as you know, he just sort of states it matter-of-factly. In two days' time, he says to them, at least at the beginning of this chapter, I will be dead. Which means that Jesus knew his fate, right? He knew that his death was imminent. He knew what was going to happen to him. In fact, Jesus always knew what was going to happen to him because uh, the scriptures tell us that before the foundation of the world, when the Father and the Son were were speaking together about this plan to redeem people, he knew that his role in that plan was going to be that he was going to have to come into this world, he was going to have to live among us, and he was going to have to die this horrible death on the cross for our sins. And Jesus never wavered from that plan. Not once. As Mark said in our time of confession, Jesus set his sights on Jerusalem. And he was always going to go there. But when we get to our text for this morning, something happens to Jesus something changes. Up until this point, whenever Jesus talked about his imminent death and and the fact that he was going to go to the cross, up until this point, Jesus seemed like he was always in complete control. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, what you find about Jesus is that no matter what seems to come his way, no matter what gets thrown at him, he is always in control. He never seems surprised. He never seems like he's not sure what to do. He never seems like he's been sort of thrown off kilter a little bit as though a curveball came at him and he wasn't sure what to do about it. He always knew what to do and he was always in complete control as he faced everything he faced. But then something changes. In this passage, we read that he takes the disciples, all 12 of them, after having dinner with them and uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, he goes to Gethsemane and he separates himself from the nine and takes the three, you know, Peter, James, and John, the kind of inner circle guys, and he goes a little further and he gets them alone and he says to them in verse 38, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Mark says that he's deeply distressed and troubled. What in the world is going on with Jesus? He seems so incredibly emotional. He seems unstable. He seems to be coming apart. Now I've read lots of commentaries over the last little while and they all try to get at what Jesus is going through, and they use words like he's astonished, he's uh, overcome with horror, he is full of anguish and anxiety, he is in absolute agony, he has tremendous heartache, he is utterly dejected. And they're all trying to get at the fact that Jesus is under some kind of incredible mental stress and strain. In fact, Luke, in his account of this scene, says that Jesus was was feeling so much pressure and so much strain that he actually sweat drops of blood which by the way I looked up and it it can happen Jesus isn't the only one who experienced this this has happened to other people as well it's incredibly rare but it is symptomatic of being under incredible pressure so much so that, that the mental and emotional and psychological pressure that you're feeling gets manifested physically somehow so that you can actually have your capillaries burst and blood can, can pour out of you. Now pour out of you, drain out of you, drip out. I don't know. I don't know the right word here, but blood, okay? Blood. In other words, Jesus is feeling like The stress of what he is facing is literally going to kill him. Now, why is that? Why? Up until this point, Jesus has been like unflappable. Nothing surprises him, nothing gets him down. He is full of composure. But something's different in the garden. And you can't say he's afraid to die. You can't say that's the problem. Jesus has always known he's going to die. And you can't say that he's just afraid of crucifixion because Jesus knew exactly what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was not an uncommon thing in that time of of, uh, history. And so Jesus probably, over the course of his life, had witnessed a crucifixion and had seen exactly what he's about to face. And he knew he was going to go through that and it never seemed to bother him, quote, unquote before. But in the garden, he felt something. He experienced something that shocked the unshockable son of God. It was more terrifying than physical torture and death. Those, those were flea bites in comparison to what he was facing. He was was being smothered by just having a whiff of something. What was the something? And the text tells us. Jesus himself tells us, in fact. In verse 38, Jesus says this, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then further down in verse 42, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Jesus was terrified by the cup. What was he talking about? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, you read that the the cup was symbolic of the wrath of God on sin. There are several places in the Old Testament where you can go to discover this. One of the most prominent places is in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Listen to what it says there. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And then, Further down in verse 27, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, drink, get drunk and vomit, and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink it, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. The cup, was a symbol of God's anger and judgment for human sin. And in Jeremiah, we read that that God tells the world, look, one day you will have to drink this cup. There is no escaping it. Nobody gets away with anything. Sin must be judged, and I am going to pour out my judgment upon it. Now listen... This is disturbing to us western folk. Us modern Western people, we, we are unsettled by the concept of the judgment and wrath of God. This is not something that other cultures and other parts of the world struggle with to the same degree that we do. We really wrestle with it. And the reason is, is because we have a very difficult time sort of reconciling this idea that God is loving and gracious and gentle and merciful with the idea that God could also be angry at sin and wrathful and that he will judge. And my inclination is to unpack a defense of the importance of the judgment of God, but I don't really have time to do that this morning. I'll do it in, a, in another context, but I'm going to say two things to you, first of all, to, to help you before we carry on. First is this. We need to understand that the wrath of God, the judgment of God on sin, is not uncontrolled rage. See, our tendency is to think about wrath and judgment as sort of like this, this uncontrolled explosion. Like if you have ever watched any of the Avenger movies, you know that there's this character, the Hulk, right? I'd talk about the show, but it looks like most of you are too young to have ever heard of the show, uh, The Incredible Hulk, so I'll stick with the movies. Uh, who was the Hulk? The Hulk was this massive, scary, green monster. But he existed in the same body somehow with this mild-mannered, gentle scientist by the name of Bruce Banner. And whenever the Avengers were fighting off their enemies, they would need the Hulk to help them, and so what would they have to do? They would have to somehow tick off Bruce Banner. They would have to push his buttons and annoy him and get him angry. I think in one of the movies, I'm not entirely sure, my kids will correct me when I get home, I think he ends up uh, with Thor sort of beating on him or something like that that, so that finally Bruce Banner gets so angry and you get a close-up of his face, and you see the rage start to shine behind his eyes, and eventually the muscles start popping, and the shirt starts coming off, and now you get this massive green monster who goes on a rampage, and he destroys everything in his past. Why? Because he's so mad. That is not the anger of God. That is not the wrath of God. God is not emotionally unstable like you and me. God doesn't just sort of lose his temper. God's judgment, rather, is perfect. God's justice is perfect because God is perfect, and therefore his judgment, it's never like misapplied. God's wrath is, is, is always directed against evil and against evil alone, which makes it very, very different from our wrath and our anger. You've got to admit that there are times when you're mad for the wrong reasons. You're mad because someone hurt your pride. You get upset because somebody stands in the way of a goal that you have or a desire that you want, and they're, they're blocking it, and so you get ticked off. And maybe you are not the kind of person who stomps and screams and raises your voice and has your eyes bug out when you get angry like I do. Maybe you're the kind of person who's just kind of quiet and smoldering and and almost even more dangerous because you're unpredictable in your anger. But your anger isn't always applied perfectly. But Jesus, God's wrath, God's anger is only ever incited by evil. John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, says, we get angry when our pride has been wounded. But there is no personal peak in the anger of God. Listen to this, nothing arouses it except evil and evil always does. You can think like God's anger is like an evil detector. You know how you have maybe outside your house you have a a light that's a motion detector? It doesn't go on unless it detects motion. Then it goes on. Well God's anger, God's justice, God's wrath is an evil detector, it doesn't go on unless evil is present, unless sin is present, but when it does, it always goes off. But my point is, actually, there's no escaping the judgment of God. There's no escaping it. God would not be God. God would not be good. God would not be righteous and holy and just if he just sort of, Turned his back on sin or winked at sin or said, eh, I'll let that one slide. You want a God who is just and holy and righteous. You need a God who is just and holy and righteous. But listen, think about the metaphor, the cup. What happens when you take a glass of water and you drink it? You ingest it. You take it in. It becomes part of you. And this idea of the wrath of God in a cup means that that on the cross, God the Father gave to his son his justice and not just to look at and, and to say, my goodness, it's terrible, it's horrible, not to just sort of stagger at the magnitude of it, but to drink it, to ingest it into his own soul as one Scholar put it, as water is poured into your stomach, so Christ must take to himself the undiluted wrath of God against our sin so as to bear it away. That's what Jesus saw in the garden. He peered over the rim of the cup. And he saw what he was going to have to drink, and he was going to have to drink it down to the dregs. And so he prayed three times. He prayed to his father, if there's any way, if there's any other way, please let us take it. But, but not, he didn't say it because, because he was looking at, at humanity and thinking to, to himself, you know, I've changed my mind. I don't want to save them. He wasn't thinking to himself, he wasn't saying to God, look, I've spent 30 plus years on this earth, I've been around these people, they suck. They're not very kind, they're not very good, they are self-centered, they don't care about one another, they are always after their own good and their own desire, they're not, they're not worth it. No, no, friend. He wasn't like a, a, a runaway bride where he was sort of facing the day and marching toward it and then all of a sudden having cold feet and thinking, you know, I'm not sure I'm into this anymore and they, they sort of hop on a horse and, and disappear into the sunset like in a 90s romance or failed romance movie. No, he was looking, he was looking at the size and scope of what he had to endure in order to make you and I his children and that rattled him to the very depths of his soul. Look, you and I, if we are honest, we do not get the seriousness of sin. We don't. We think that we're holding a birthday candle in our hands when we've got a stick of dynamite. We don't realize just how deadly and destructive sin actually is because... If Think of the sins in your life. Think of the times that you have done the same thing over and over and over again. And what is your natural reaction? What is your natural response? You want to minimize it. You want to say, well, it's not that bad. I mean, there's nobody else around. I'm not bothering anybody. I'm not hurting anybody else when I do this. It's, it's, it's not such a big deal. Or you try to justify it and you say, look, you know, if you if you lived the life I kind of lived, if you had the stressors that I am under, you would understand that you need like a little release. And And so entering into this one space that I know is sinful or whatever that I, I use to try kind of moderate and deal with the stress that I face in life, it, it's it's understandable. Or you say, you know, if you knew my family of origin, my goodness, you know, the kind of the stress and pain and suffering that I had to endure in my upbringing, you would, you would do the things that I do too. We do this all the time. Do you feel Flee temptation honestly. When Satan tempts you and he is relentless about it, it's like the waves of the ocean crashing upon you over and over and over and over again. Do you not just eventually give up and give in? We don't take seriously When Jesus says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter the kingdom of God maimed than to lose your soul. Do we think of these things when we're facing our temptations? No. Because we are blinded to the seriousness of our sin. We're blinded to the depth of it. We're blinded to the destructiveness of it. We are blinding ourselves. It's like we live with glaucoma or something. We just can't see clearly. But Jesus, He was a perfect man in every way, and He was the Son of God. And so He saw completely clearly the depths of sin, and He also understood clearly God's wrath upon it, what it deserved. And he knew that his father would never pour out too much or too little judgment upon sin, but he knew that God's wrath was terrifying. Psalm 90 verse 11 says, who knows the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Jesus lived that in the garden. And so no wonder... No wonder he wrestled with the task, with the cup. No wonder he, he pleaded. No wonder he, he begged. It made complete sense. But here's the thing. He submitted. We didn't read it, but when the soldiers with Judas come to arrest him, he doesn't resist. He, says, he actually says to his friend, he calls him, he calls him friend the one who was going to betray him, and he knew he was going to do it, and he says to Judas, do what you came for, friend. He just offered his hands I don't know if they put cuffs on him. And when Peter tried to pull a sword and tried to defend him, he stopped Peter. No, Peter, that's not the way. That's not the way of my kingdom. And he was quiet. And Isaiah 53 says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. You know, lambs don't resist their death. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. And you know, the next day, on that first Good Friday, God presented Jesus with the cup of his judgment, this thing that had nearly destroyed him, just looking at it in the garden, and Jesus drank it. And he drank, and he drank, and he drank. And for three hours, the world was descended into complete Pitch darkness while he drank God's judgment for sin to the point where he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, he said, It is finished. The cup was empty. And why did he do that? Why did he drink that cup? Friends, he drank that cup so that you and I don't have to. See, don't misunderstand. I don't know what you know about the Christian faith, but don't misunderstand. Because Jesus drank the cup, that does not mean that the cup of God's wrath is now gone. It remains. It's still there. In Revelation chapter 14... John sees the end of time, and he says in verse 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 14, he says, for this very reason, no, where am I? Oh, I'm looking at Romans, sorry. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. I didn't put my little thingy in here. Revelation 14, 9 and 10 A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. The judgment remains. You see, Jordan Peterson's not a Christian, but he gets this. Nobody gets away With anything. God is perfectly righteous, and therefore, when He brings the judgment to this world, He says that He will put absolutely everything right. But the thing is, is that because Jesus drank the cup, you and I don't have to drink it. And not only that, it's not just that we don't have to drink it, but Jesus actually offers us a different cup. Just earlier in Matthew 26, Jesus is up in the upper room with his friends, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, and he holds out a cup for them. It's probably a way better cup than these little things we're using right now, but he holds out a cup to them, and he says to his friends, he says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't just say, listen, I've taken away the the wrath of God for you so you can go off and and try to... Live your best life now. He says, no, I'm giving you a new cup to drink, the cup of sweet forgiveness. You don't have to drink the bitter cup of God's judgment. You can drink the sweet cup of forgiveness. Why do you think it's wine? Throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, wine represents joy. It represents celebration. It represents a party. And this is the cup that Jesus offers us. When you put your trust in him, when you put your faith in him, when you hold on to him for dear life, you get this cup. Because he bore the cup of judgment for your sin. That's what he offers us. That's what he's done for us. Now, let me apply this in three ways quickly. First of all, I do not say this lightly, okay? (laughs) But some of you in this room or maybe watching on live stream, you need to realize that unless you put your trust in Jesus, there is still the cup of wrath that is waiting for you. And I do not say this lightly but there is a cup with your name on it. And as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, he says it is appointed for each person to die once and then comes the judgment. Do not be fooled. The day is coming when Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead and there is a cup that awaits all of those who do not put their trust in Jesus Christ and so I am pleading with you. I don't know the state of anybody's heart in here. I can't look into it. I know God alone can look into it but I am pleading with you right now with you look at the cross And when, yes, you look at the cross and you think, preacher man, all I see is the anger of God there. Yes, the anger of God there is there, but do you not also see that the love of God is there, that the love of Jesus is there? When you look at the cross, do you not see that Jesus was willing to die for you, that he had your name on his lips, that he had your, hands in his, your name on his hands, that he was thinking about you as he drank the dregs of God's wrath for your sin? He was thinking of you, and he was saying, I'm doing it for you, if you would just reach out and put your trust in him. What more does he have to do? Maybe you're afraid to trust him. Maybe you think, if I give my life to Jesus, I'll become one of these freaks. I don't even know what you mean by freaks. Maybe a guy like me who jumps around on a stage and rants and raves. Most Christians aren't like that. Don't worry. You don't have to become like that either. But maybe you're afraid of trusting him. Maybe you're thinking, if I give my life to him and I let him control me, maybe I won't have a life of joy and happiness. But friends, what more does he have to do to show you that he is so trustworthy? Before you even knew anything of it, he was drinking the cup of God's judgment for your sin. This is no small thing. I do not, I do not take pleasure in telling you that God's judgment for sin is real. And that all of us will face the judgment of God one day. And that those who refuse to bow the knee to Him, they will have to drink that cup themselves. But you don't have to. You don't have to. You can have this cup. All you need to do is trust him. And he's proven his trustworthiness time and time and time and time again. And Christian friends, maybe, maybe you're going through a time right now where you are feeling like your life sucks. Your dreams are not being realized. Your hopes are coming unfulfilled. You're struggling under the weight of mental health issues or physical problems or financial struggles. And you are at that point where you are starting to feel a little bit ticked off with God and you're starting to wonder what good is God in all of this when I have to face all of this and I have to deal with all of this and he doesn't seem to be anywhere and I cry out to him and nothing seems to change. And what you want to say is, is what are you good for? And with all due respect, and I say this as lovingly as I can, friend, what you need to have is you need to have a bit of a spiritual attitude adjustment because God did not send Jesus into this world to give you your best life now. He didn't send Jesus into this world so that you would never have to suffer, so that you would never have to experience hardship, so that you would always get your dreams fulfilled and you would always find joy and pleasure in everything you do. Jesus came into this world to drink the cup to bear your sin, to reconcile you to God so that when you do suffer, listen, when you do suffer, when you do struggle, when you do feel like life is about to destroy you and you want to sweat bullets because of the pressure and the stress that you are under, God himself understands. He knows what you're going through. In fact, nothing you could go through could ever even compare to what he went through for you. To make you his so that he will never leave you and never forsake you and you always have him with you in the midst of it. Why would you drink from the cup of bitterness when you can drink from the cup of consolation? And then finally... some of us are walking in disobedience and we all we all are to 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 some degree but some of us really we are walking in disobedience we are christians but we have chosen to wander from our savior in some way and we are hard-hearted and we are belligerent and we are committed to following our dreams or following our heart or following our our hopes and and we know that this is displeasing to god and and people have tried to tell us people have tried to to share with us our family our friends our 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 church leadership they've reached out to us and they've tried to call us back sometimes people have begged us and they have conjoled us and they have even threatened us and and we all know that the righteousness of or the the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of god so that doesn't work Would you please look at the cross too? Would you see that Jesus drank that cup? He took the punishment for your sin. Why? To bear it away. If he drinks that cup and it's empty, you can't drink it because he drank it for you. The sin that you are committing right now, he paid the penalty for that sin and he did it so that you could break free and turn away and give yourself to him. And to experience the freedom that comes from having the Son of God welcome you as his own and cause you to flee temptation, to hate sin and love righteousness.